regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to uh, another episode of Datacast and uh, today I'm speaking with Alexandra Hunter. He is an uh, artificial intelligence practitioner and entrepreneur made in Ukraine, uh, living in Italy and working worldwide. He has a master's degree in mathematics from the University of Verona in Italy and uh, is working in the AI field for the last uh, seven years. Um, he grew up uh, and he grew up from a data scientist to a father and a tech leader for several companies. Lately, he founded Neuron Labs, which is an AI boutique where he pushed AI frontiers and builds, which is unique for the culture of freedom and creativity without a strong technical expert. Now, apart from business, he's also a blogger on Medium about recent AI advance and uh, also a speaker at conferences and meetups uh, across Europe. So, uh, Alex, uh, great to have you on the show. Yeah, hello, James. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for such a nice intro. I'm all yours. Awesome. So so I want to start out our conversation talking about your uh, educational background. So uh, you, you got a bachelor degree in applied mathematics at the Kiev Polytechnic Institute. So can you quickly describe your undergrad experience? Yeah, it was uh, interesting because actually before going to university, I wasn't really good in mathematics. I mean, I was trying to do some programming as a teenager, but my first year at university was really survival. But uh, already on the second, the third year, I, I kind of understood what it's about. I started to be curious about different topics. So actually, I'm really thankful to this university because it kind of showed me what is mathematics, what is applied mathematics, and it helped me to get my kind of first, first ideas about machine learning as well. So it was interesting. Awesome. Um, and I also saw on your profile that, you know, during your time in college, you work remotely um, as a machine learning engineer for, for a company based in the U.S. called Inma AI. So uh, I'm just curious, how did you get involved with this? Uh, it was a super luck, actually, because I was just in university and I saw the advertisement on the A4 paper, like in, on the door, that uh, they're looking, some company is looking for the machine learning engineers. Of course, I emailed them because it was my second or third year. And uh, actually, I realized that they're Ukrainian guys doing their PhD in the United States. And they were making their startup. And uh, of course, I asked them to be in, to help in anything I can do even for free first. And uh, that's how my professional journey started. That's why I started to build actually some working products, working solutions. They were immediately tested on some real people. So I was actually really, really lucky to get into some real development years. But it was really a nice experience and nice project. Awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's great that you uh, you got a chance to kind of like get get that um, get some real experience while still in school, right? Go to yeah. balance yeah. with your academics. 
can you talk about your decision to you know pursue a master degree um, in mathematics at the University of Verona right after uh, your undergrad? Yeah, I was actually I was always uh, I always wanted to study abroad. I was thinking about Europe, uh, Germany, Italy, France. But uh, I applied to University of Verona because there was a scholarship position for uh, people from not from European Union, and I applied. I won it, and actually that kind of was the final decision because of the scholarship. But overall, it was a challenge for me because I didn't know Italian language. I didn't know almost nothing about Italy. So also, it was some sort of Adventure for Interesting. Uh, it's like the, the Italian education, is it uh, very different from, from Ukraine? I think that education itself as a, as a process is not really different. There's still classes, there's still uh, teachers, uh, still the subjects, still the exams, still the midterms. But I think what's really, there's two main different things. First one is the choice, because in Ukraine you, you didn't get to choose the subject. You just have a program and you have to study at all. And if you don't pass, for example, one exam, you're just out of university. In Italy and Europe, overall, it's different. You have to pass some amount of credits to get the subject of the choice, which for me was really a big relief because they finally get to choose what they want to study. And the second main difference is the students' community because uh, uh, in Ukraine, kind of everyone goes to study and it uh, has no value in a way because uh, it's kind of easy to get into university, it's easy to pass the exams, uh, people kind of tend to cheat on the exams. Mm. And Italy is totally different because if you don't want to study, you simply go to university. So that's why the quality of the students' community is much better. Now when it's cheating, everyone's really into studying and it's really, it's really great. I see. So you have much more of a, of a supportive environment to to nurture your yes, study, right? Indeed. What were some of the most useful classes that you took during your master degree? Uh, I think actually almost all of the classes were really interesting because the program there in, in Verona was uh, more like mathematics oriented, and uh, being a machine learning guy, I like to understand like really deep inside how the algorithms, how the models work. So actually, from all the courses, I took something from me. I think what was more kind of like not shocking but really uh, totally new for me were subjects like differential geometry and deep optimization theory because it kind of opened to me the branches of mathematics that I even wasn't aware about before and also kind of explained to me some ideas in machine learning as well like for example manifold learning this kind of stuff so I would say everything that was related to the new mathematics area was really useful and interesting. And I was immediately trying to find some connections with machine learning, so it was like a double usefulness. Very cool, yeah. Uh, that's one of those areas that I, I'm interested in exploring as well, sort of optimization stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I do not have like a formal background in math, so some of those concepts may be harder, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely curious to kind of learn more about them, which seems to be a very niche area of, of ML, right? Just ask me when you have some questions, so I'll try to help you. <laughs> For sure. So, um, during during this phase, you also work remotely at another company called MLVH, MLVH to which uh, create the best solution on the market related to visual style transfer and image enhancement. So, what uh, interesting projects that you work on? 
Yeah, basically this MLVC, which is actually kind of pronounced like Malevich, it's the surname of one uh, artist, a painterist. Uh, the idea of the project was, if you remember, a couple of years ago, especially at that time, it was popular such application where you take a photo and it uh, repaints your photo. For example, it was uh, uh, drawn by Picasso or by Van Gogh with this kind of strokes and style. And basically, Malevich, I would say second uh, product on the market of this field. And uh, what we are trying to do, the, it was relatively easy to make the algorithm because uh, it was on the GitHub and, uh, okay, even you can code it from scratch really easily. Uh, the main uh, kind of difficulties were to adapt it to what the people wanted to see because, uh, for example, people want to see different brush strokes when it's a selfie, when it's the photo of the city, when it's the photo of the nature. So it was uh, not just uh, the algorithm of the style transfer itself in neural network, but also kind of complex uh, recommender systems. And for different kind of situations or different kind of photos, they were working different algorithms. So I think the interesting part of it, I kind of learned that uh, machine learning should be actually personalized. So there is uh, maybe no way to make one big neural network that serves all the needs. But if you do personalize, it's for each situation have a different model. This for now, this is uh, working really well. I see, yeah, definitely. Uh, Star transfer was one of those techniques that made a lot of um, press coverage, in, in especially in computer vision, a few years mm -hmm. back, and it seems like um, there's always new application of, of that style uh, in the industry as well, in, in various hobby projects, and I'm glad that uh, you, you were able to shed some light on that. Yeah. So, your master thesis uh, is called Boosting financial models calibration with deep neural networks. So, can you uh, give a quick summary of what it is about? Yeah, basically, in the financial world, this is still really driven by some mathematical models. For example, model is supposed to be describing some, uh, some stochastic movement of the prices of some assets. And uh, these models, they have to be calibrated to the real market situation, because what is the mathematical model? It depends on some degrees of freedom. But what exactly degrees of freedom are described in the market today, it's kind of not known. And this process of uh, finding the exact values of the degrees of freedom is called calibration. And usually it's a really complex, stochastic, non-convex optimization problem that can be run by some complex evolutionary algorithms and some non-heuristic models for hours. And basically, my thesis was about uh, appro approximating this uh, complex solution to neural networks. So it was uh, almost the same accurate, but it, take, it, it takes less than a second to make this optimization part. So that was the main value of my master's thesis. I see, I see. And you actually also, um, you, you wrote a blog post kind of um, refers to your thesis called uh, mm -hmm. Meta Learning in Finance, uh, Boosting Models Calibration with Deep Learning. And uh, in that blog post, you... Uh, you concluded that you also would like to try, you know, meta learning in uh, a few other uh, application domain in other industry, you know, where decisions are driven by mathematical models that need to be calibrated. So I'm just curious, you know, what are some of those uh, industry and how do you think uh, meta learning can can be utilized effectively? Yeah, uh, first of all, this is the physics. And because in physical world, especially trying to model some, uh, for example, some equations that are describing some uh, uh, behavior of some objects, maybe in this space, maybe on uh, a microscopic level, you're still doing 
sets of equations with some differential equations, for instance, which is a mathematical model. And if you have a differential equation or system of differential equations, it has a lot of degrees of freedom. And you still need to do the same calibration task. Another field is biology. For example, if I'm a bit interested in neuroscience, and when you're describing how uh, network of the neurons in your brain works, you're also still using some differential equations. And you need to still adapt this model to the some particular part of brain, for example. And we are still coming to this calibration problem. I think everywhere where you are dealing with some mathematical models that needs to be calibrated, this approach can be adapted really effectively. I see. So just to reiterate, like you said, physics and, and biology, especially uh, yeah. neuroscience. Yeah, I see. for example, yes. Definitely, definitely. That's great to hear. So you have been a partner and uh, solution architect at uh, Maui Solution, which is an Ukraine-based hardware and software company that is disrupting the market of wearable preventive healthcare. Uh, so for the people who are not familiar with Maui Solution, can you share a brief overview of the company uh, as well as uh, some interesting projects that you've been involved with? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm still a partner of this company, and uh, I think it's really one of the greatest projects I've been working with. It's uh, related, as, as you say, hardware and software company. So basically, what we did, we have developed our own wearable device. It uh, looks like Fitbit, but it measures electrocardiogram. So basically, it measures medical signal. And I am responsible for all the algorithmic parts, uh, or all the things that you can extract from the signal. I think the easiest thing that you can think of is uh, to detect some uh, cardio diseases like atrial fibrillation, other arrhythmias, ischemia, maybe like uh, to predict the heart stroke. This is the one of the things that can be done with this device. But also, we figure out that from the ECG as a signal, uh, it uh, tells not just about your heart. It's actually tightly connected, uh, and uh, your heart is responding to different things from your body. So also, ECG can be used for this, uh, detecting the stress level, but that also is done in different other products. But uh, for example, what is really interesting, we build a product that uses ECG as the fingerprint. So basically, instead of uh, entering the PIN code, instead of using your fingerprint, mm -hmm. instead of scanning your face, you can measure ECG. You just need one of your heart, one a single heartbeat of yours. It can identify you as a person. It's very accurate. Another interesting project was related to a woman's health. Basically, the measurement of the cardiogram can uh, detect some, uh, something like menstrual cycle of a woman. And uh, now women, uh, they use, I would say, pretty outdated approaches to track uh, their health. So, and actually, we are still working on different alternative hypotheses, but uh, really, I think what's the most interesting part in this project is that uh, you have one source of a signal, which is your heart, mm -hmm. and it tells much, much more about your body. This is Very interesting, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it, it seems like it kind of related to some of the part that you just mentioned earlier in, in the, my previous question, right? Like you try to like uh, design model for calibrate, calibration, and in this case for, for yeah. ECG and, and uh, signal processing for, for, your, for your heart rate. Yeah, so, um, uh, and definitely like you mentioned about Fitbit, it's, it's been on the news recently. Uh, given its uh, acquisition by by Google, so you know, obviously, like a lot of in investment is going on in this sort of um, uh, how I don't know. I guess like um, full body integration with tech, uh, try to, to try to optimize your body, right? So it's interesting that you, you kind of uh, talk a little bit about some of your work at, at Mavi Solution. Um, mm -hmm. 
and uh, actually in a blog post called Deep Learning, the Final Frontier for Signal Processing and Time Series Analysis, you went over several areas where signals and time series are vital and you actually share your experience uh, you know, applying deep learning for biosignal analysis at MAPI Solution. And in fact, you also gave a talk at uh, PyCon Italia a few months ago on this topic. So could you mind quickly going over some of the key takeaways from this article slash this talk? Yeah, basically, when I just started to work uh, on these applications at MAPI Solutions, I realized that uh, a lot of uh, machine learning models from computer vision, from natural language processing, like convolutional neural networks, recurrent neural networks, uh, can be adapted to work with time series. And uh, that made me to explore like uh, different sources of time series, like financial time series, uh, some uh, another like uh, time series that are from another devices, another biosignals. And basically, a blog post I summarized that uh, you can see time series and uh, sign out from different, very different points of view. And uh, actually compared to classical mathematical models that are now used to model, for example, financial time series, to model something like the sales data, to model some biosignals, you can replace this mathematical models with deep learning. And actually deep learning uh, looks to me and to some other experts as some final approximation and uh, most uh, evolved mathematical model that can be applied to this time series. So basically, maybe you can't even create anything much more complex, complex from the mathematical point of view because any formula you create can be approximated by neural networks. So what else are you going to create there? So basically, this is what, what, uh, what this blog post is about. I see. So you try to combine both um, neural networks and as well as some of the mathematical modeling. Uh, mm -hmm. In order to 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 measure this, um, I guess sequential data, right? Because because time series yeah. is essentially sequential data, and, and you mentioned like it come in the application is is fast, right? So financial, uh, biosignal, even in like speech recognitions, for example, so on. So it's definitely um, universal uh, in 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 various various domains. Yeah, completely right. Um. So. Since last year, you have co-founded and served as CTO of Neuron Labs, um, an innovative European AI boutique firm based out of London. Uh, and, and so based on my, uh, my research on the company, Neuron Labs serves clients in fintech, uh, martech, and medtech areas. So can you talk about your decision behind uh, the founding of Neuron Labs, uh, as well as uh, some of the projects that you have worked on uh, in the past year? Yeah, I can tell you. Basically, the idea to create this company was born into the into like two main reasons. First one was related to that I'm talking to very many technical experts, like data scientists, engineers, and the main problem they see that when they work, uh, whatever they do, they can be in consulting business, they can be in uh, like product development. Usually, if you are, for instance, data scientist, you kind of have to do everything what you what you ask to do. For example, you need to you don't just do the modeling, you need to clean the data, you need to do the data pipelines, you need to validate the models, sometimes you even need to label the data, which is kind of frustrating, especially if you're like five, seven years uh, experience uh, expert, but you still need to do that just because there is no kind of alternative. And also we know that uh, to really become the expert in the field, you need to focus on some particular things. And uh, I got the idea that it would be nice to create a company where every person does just what uh, he or she is really focused on. For example, if 
I like uh, biosignal analysis. I want to judge biosignal analysis and I don't want to participate in any other projects. Of course, it means that I have to be kind of a freelancer and I need to take care of finding such projects. So basically, to have a network of such professionals, you need a structure in the company. So that was uh, the like the main idea why what is, what is the core of Neuron Club. So it's not just some consulting business. Basically, it's more like a network of professionals that are combined by the vision that they want to dive deep into some topics and uh, to be the best in it. And uh, also for several years I was freelancing as a data scientist, so I already had a team. And uh, I thought like it would be nice to combine the guys that I was working with. Uh, and uh, their vision basically was similar to my vision, so we kind of started it. And uh, now we're already growing, I have a couple of projects. Uh, I can tell you about one of them. One of these projects is uh, in FinTech, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, uh, it's related to using alternative data sets, like uh, not just market data, but for example, something from the images, from the text, from some social media, to find the uh, signals, predictive signals, that can predict cryptocurrency markets. And based on the signals, you build a portfolio that uh, are like uh, meet some uh, particular risk profiles of the investors. And uh, we run this portfolio in life that they are trading and they're making money. So this is, for example, one of the interesting projects we are still working on. Uh, I'm just curious, what's, what's behind the name? Uh, why, why do you call it Neron's Lab? Uh, hard to tell. It was uh, like maybe a couple of days brainstorm of me and my partner Igor, and uh, we just like I don't know because like a lot because I think I consider us more uh, more as a research mm-hmm. company than uh, just software shop. Uh, and neurons because I think uh, we as individual neurons we do like uh, some focus stuff, but as a network we can do much more. So you can see the metaphor like this. Really, really cool. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and then I, uh, I'll link that into the show notes so people have got a chance to <clears throat> check out uh, Neuron's lab and um, maybe reach out to you if they're interested in, in some sort of collaboration. Um, yeah, of course, definitely. So, so let, let's move on to discuss some of your writing, which allows me to find you in the first place. So uh, you are very well known for a series of blog posts that experiment neural networks for algorithmic trading time series forecasting. Can you talk about your motivation to write this series and um, what are some of the few key takeaways that the readers might get? Yeah, I can tell. Actually, this is really, really one of my biggest interests. Obviously, how to predict something that is not predictable, supposedly. And uh, when I was in uh, my financial mathematics course at the University of Verona, uh, I decided to make joint research with the professor of the course. And when I started to read the articles on this topic, I realized that uh, maybe 90% of the people who are doing research in this field are simply lying. They are not telling you any correct metrics. They are not uh, testing the models on out-of-sample data. And even if they, when they present some results, you can see it's clear overfit. This model can't work in real life, like never. And that was my main motivation to start experimenting with machine learning for this. But uh, I decided to make it public because to show that it's not that easy as it looks like. And actually, after uh, the series of experiments that actually turned into some real-world projects with uh, clients, I can tell you that uh, forecasting financial time series with neural networks is uh, it's extremely difficult work. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you 
if you really want to extract some, no, I would say if you really want to make data-driven investments, really want to extract uh, some signals from the data to do trading, you shouldn't look only at financial data series. Of course, they have some patterns and you can have some nice uh, models that are better than a chance, that are better than random models. But if you really want to have the edge, you have to look at some additional data source and you need to look at to, into more like market understanding, not just expect that you can train neural network and it will make you a lot of fun. Yeah, and you actually um, have a GitHub repo called Deep Trading that uh, on your GitHub profile that um, kind of like has all the source code for some of the experiments you run for the series, right? So people can get a chance to kind of like go. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Everyone can have a look at it, but uh, I don't suggest you to use this code like to actually to trade for your own money. Uh, really be careful, <laughs> check out all the posts because I was telling also about the mistakes I did. No, it's true, so it's not that easy. Interesting. I, I think like, what resources though, besides some of your, your I think uh, when I was reading through your, some of your blog posts, you did recommend a couple of books and resources uh, to learn more about financial machine learning, right? Can, can you talk more about some of your, the best um, books or papers yeah. or resources that, yeah. You, yeah, that you use? Uh, I think also it will be a really good idea if you put some list of the resources uh, like in the comments or in some uh, comments to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the key thing is they have to learn about uh, financial mathematics and uh, some sort of statistics and how the markets work. Mm-hmm. Because uh, financial data is not like pictures, it's not like uh, text, it's not like speech, it's not like uh, data about uh, what people are buying on the website or what movies and people are watching. The idea is that it's really random and the patterns, they're not uh, stationary. And uh, the patterns that are relevant today may be not relevant tomorrow. So I think the key point is really to read about the market. I think really some books about the economy, about uh, financial mathematics can be fine. I think something for more detailed, maybe let's uh, make it in the written form. Also, I'll prepare some lists and we can attach it to the podcast. Thanks for sharing that. So- yeah. In uh, a post called Multitask Learning, teach your AI more to make it better, you show what uh, multitask learning is for humans and algorithms, how researchers today apply this concept and how to use it for any problem to increase the model performance. And you actually also kind of uh, did some experiment with, with some code uh, for, for different use cases on, on that post. So. Uh, how do you see, uh, you know, this technique of multitask learning currently being applied in the industry? Uh, yeah, basically the main idea of uh, this multitask learning is that you have some model, a neural network, whatever you want, and uh, the same model with the same parameters trained on the same data predicts different things. And uh, for instance, when you have a picture, it doesn't predict just the uh, for example, the face or not the face of a person. It also predicts uh, the age, it predicts the emotions, it predicts the gender, whatever you want. And it's all done by the same model with the same weight. And what I was trying to show on the blog post that uh, when you train any model for any task, if you really find some relevant additional task to learn, so instead of one problem, like the main problem you're trying to solve, you find some additional, most probably this additional task will help your main task because it works as some sort of regular writer to this model. I can tell you like a financial example. 
you have uh, 10 series forecasting, you want to forecast the price in the future. But just imagine that, that, that apart of forecasting the price, you're also trying to forecast the volatility. And also you're trying to forecast uh, some uh, additional related you know, correlation with some uh, another asset that this, this, this particular asset you're working with is correlated with. So instead of having the one task, you're having three tasks. One main task and two additional ones. And these additional ones will help your main task to converge faster, first of all, and also to be more accurate because this uh, works as regularization, works as some constraints. So if your model also kind of knows about future volatility and future correlations, it will know better about the future price. This is the main idea. I see. Yeah, because always, like, most of the time, like these different tasks, uh, the, the features being used for those tasks, like you just mentioned, uh, how we correlate to we do the main task, right? So by mm-hmm. by by learning those, um, I guess, like uh, subordinate tasks, you can extract relevant features that can be used towards the main task as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Awesome, awesome. Uh, you have been also uh, a, a very passionate advocate for uh, generative models. Now, as evidence in uh, two of your blog posts, one is called uh, "Gans Beyond Generation: Seven Alternative Use Cases," and another one called "Generative AI: A Key to Machine Intelligence." So, how do you see uh, generative models being adopted in the industry in the next few years, and uh, what are some of the use cases that you are most excited about? My such a passion for generative models is mainly covered by two rather book examples. First one is in the really classical book of uh, Christopher Bishop. Uh, I think he was in Microsoft, maybe he's still in Microsoft, I know, like head of uh, research. And it's called uh, Pattern Recognition Machine Learning. It's a relatively old book, but uh, in the very, very beginning, when the, there were like different paradigms of learning, the idea of generative modeling was stated as the is the main one, is the most general one, the most complex one, but also the one that actually allows you to learn the data for real. Not just to learn how to detect the face from the images, but really to learn the structure of the image. And here I come to my second also book motivation, the quote of uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist. He says, if I can't create something, recreate something, I don't understand it. And this metaphor actually works in the case of generative modeling. If your model doesn't understand the data enough, so from this data it can recreate some samples of this data if you learn on the face images. And you can't, with this model, create the face image, so maybe your model learned something wrong. Maybe it doesn't really understand the data. Mm -hmm. So equipped with this uh, motivation, I was researching how uh, generative models can be applied for much more wide uh, range of applications. And uh, yeah, figure out it can be used, for example, for anomaly detection. You can train generative model and based on the representation of generative model, train a model for classification or regressions to use. So, and actually gives uh, much higher results than just if you learn this classification model from scratch. And uh, I see this really, really great direction and really a lot of people working it and the more and more people actually understand the importance of this concept. So first to learn how to generate and after you learn how to classify something, which was stated by Bishop in his book. And uh, but apart of that of course you see some kind of funny applications like this deep fake, 
which are in fact not that funny and we can generate some uh, imaginary faces we can copy the voice of a person we can even generate some videos we can generate the you know, levels of the mobile game or super mario whatever so i think uh, we will we will see and we will see much more both practical applications generating models and also kind of like uh, research will be like research direction will kind of back more applied algorithms for it. I think that, okay, like long story short, how I see that uh, today you use a neural network uh, that is complex, that is deep and classified images. I see that in the future you use first generative models that will learn the distribution, the nature of the data, and the after will be some classifier based on this based on this model, something like this. I see. Just just from my personal experience, I think uh, I think and then you should, actually you probably already mentioned it, but uh, the uh, use case of uh, alternative data, right? Like uh, especially especially in Europe with with GDPR and and law of data <coughs> privacy, a lot of companies um, cannot. I mean, it's not legal to use uh, user data. So, using some sort of, you know, autoencoders or, or generative adversarial networks to kind of generate some of the, the data based off of uh, other features probably going to allow those those technologies to 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 train better models uh, without you know having to, you know, violating some of those privacy, right? Yeah, exactly. This is one of the practical examples you're totally right about. This is what we actually already see in the practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and kind of go, going off of that, um, in another article called GANs versus ODEs, the end of mathematical modeling, you talk about an approach called disentangled representation learning, which combines the best of both classical math and you know machine learning modeling. Uh, and actually, the, the, the audience can see the code and your talk as well on another topic. So can you quickly uh, provide some of the a nice uh, characteristic of this method? Yeah, basically the idea is uh, based on that uh, before before any machine learning we still were modeling some data and we had some formulas, we had some differential equations where each parameter we can interpret. For example, in physics we can say this is the speed, this is the, this is the distance and this is the temperature and we know what every parameter means. Now in deep learning we have some neural network that has billions of parameters we know nothing about them, like we can't interpret them. And uh, this idea of disentangled uh, representation is when we have uh, some layer of neural network that we can actually interpret where each neuron in the layer means something and we can interpret it. For example, if we model the same physics, we can say that this neuron is responsible for the speed. This one is responsible for the size of the object. This one for the color of the object. And uh, this idea is kind of in the research stage still, but the deep mind of Google is pretty pushing it. And I showed in some experiments that it works for cardio data, for ECG. It may also work for financial data. So uh, I don't know how far it will go, but I think uh, this is really important approach to make our deep learning really interpretable. Definitely, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of research on you know, machine learning explainability, right, in the past few years. Yeah. And, um, you know, just, just try to, how to provide um, feature importance and recent codes for some of the some of the um, features that the, the, that the neural networks learn. So I think it seems like um, this research approach that you, you mentioned in the post kind of 
allow us to disentangle that complex mm-hmm. interaction. Yeah. In a very informative post called Fantastic Data Scientists, Where to Find Them and How to Become One. You uh you, you wrote about, you know, six different types of data scientists, you know, there's the generalist, there's a consultant, there's an analyst, there's an uh, algorithmist, there's a researcher and engineer. And then you also provided um, a, a, a something called a data science competency matrix with uh, a variety of skills, you know, from computer science to math optimization to research to communication. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, which type of um, data science profile that you most identify with, you know, yourself, and uh, mm-hmm. what are some of the skill set that you are kind of looking to improve upon? Yeah, that's a good one, actually. I think that uh, from my past career point of view, I'm definitely the algorithmist. So I think that more than 80% of my tasks were to get some approach from the scientific paper, from maybe from some idea, and you know, to implement it to make it work. So basically, I was the person who knows how to implement algorithms and uh, the simulations are working, they can be trained on data and they work like uh, in practice, etc. So I think uh, my main competence is as an algorithmist, but uh, I'm kind of trying to be also the researcher, but it's not that I'm trying to improve at the moment and trying to read more papers and trying also to think what approach I can create and trying to read more on mathematics. But uh, unfortunately, for the moment, I can't say I'm really strong as a researcher. I mean, I have some papers published, but I think uh, I need to really improve for myself as a researcher, as a person who actually creates new approaches, not just knows how to implement another one. So you, you're looking to improve upon and research why traditionally yes. Yes. You've, been, you've been more on the algorithm side, right? Just kind of curiosity, um, do you think for, say, out of all this profile that you mentioned, which one that uh, more suitable for, say, you know, young people like like sort of at a junior level, like uh, you know, fresh graduate? What sort of profile that they they? I did? think uh, yeah. I think this is the profile. This is uh, like it's not like what is suitable for a young person or something. This is what actually companies. This is how companies they have these profiles inside their structure, inside the culture, inside the processes. So it depends on where they go. For example, if you go to a big four consultancy, mm-hmm. uh, you most probably will be a typical consultant or analyst. Uh, you will not, uh, most probably, most probably you will not become a good researcher, a good programmer, or a good engineer. Most probably your job will be to talk to the clients, understand the needs, and to implement some relatively simple proof of concept so you can tell it. And after the engineers and the programmers and the data scientists, they make from it some state-of-the-art solution. If you go to know, Google research, if you go to PhD, obviously you're going to be a researcher. If you go to the startup, most probably you'll be the algorithmist because, you know, I work mostly in the startups and I have to implement a lot of algorithms because all the time I need a new feature and uh, I was the one who had to implement this feature. Like, uh, there is a new paper that shows some cool stuff, let's have it. You know, that was my job to do. So I think it depends on where you want to work and uh, what kind of future you see for yourself. So, I see. And actually, I think it's kind of normal to be a generalist as well. If you're working especially in a non-tech company mm-hmm. and you're trying to adapt data science for it, I think that's a really important work to make a non-technological company a data-driven company. I think in this case, you need to know a little of everything. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in this way you need to kind of know about the processes, about the coding, about the mathematics a bit. But uh, if you're a generalist, I think it's what the cool part about it, that you can become the manager and the entrepreneur because you know how to the parts of everything and you can manage a team of these people because they already know a bit of each work. Yeah, and that, that kind of also emphasizes on the importance of being a continuous learner, right? Like you, I mean, it's yeah. still obviously like you have to constantly keep up to date with uh, R&D work and new approach and... I mean, data science didn't exist, like probably, say, until 2011. So mm-hmm. it traditionally was a few, it was a combination of a lot of different things, right? So you kind of like, in that sense, you're already like an entrepreneur because you kind of like, you know, you try to, try to learn from everything and kind of being that T-shaped kind of person, uh, being able yeah, to con- yeah. converse with different different kind of uh, functional department. I definitely believe that, you know, maybe starting out as a journalist is, is the right way and then moving on, like, depending on the kind of company level and the type of... Uh, fl- I agree, fl- I agree. Flavor, yeah, flavor of, uh, of data science that you want to be, you, you might want to specialize on, say, like, research or mm-hmm. engineering or consulting, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'm, personally, for me, like, I'm in school, so, you know, definitely uh, kind of... Uh, doing some, a little bit of research right now. I'm also very interested in startups, so probably like try to learn some algorithm, but uh, in the future, I feel like consultant is, is, uh, is an interesting one because you, you can you can work with different people, right? Different, so different problems, so. And also try to kind of like improve. Up yeah, I think it's cool to try different things. You can try this, this, and this, and after you choose, no one, no one forbids you from doing this. Mm-hmm. Great, so that's, that's a great one. In one, one of your most recent article called AI for portfolio management from Markovitz to reinforcement learning. You review different methods for optimizing uh, asset portfolio, including classical mathematics, unsupervised and supervised machine learning approach, uh, reinforcement learning agent, and a few other uh, uh, exotic options. Uh, so, uh, would you mind going over sort of this evolution of uh, algorithmic approach for asset portfolio management? Yeah, yeah. Basically, what is portfolio management? Is when you have one million dollars and you are thinking, I want to put ten percent in the real estate, twenty percent crypto, thirty percent in American stock market, another thirty in the Chinese stock market, or I don't know, whatever you want. So this is the like rough idea about what is portfolio management. And uh, algorithmically, it can be described as uh, from very different point of view. For example. Classical economical theory is uh, telling that this is optimization problem. That, that the investor wants to maximize the returns while minimizing the risks. And based on this idea, lots of optimization algorithms are created. Uh, also, it can be seen as some sort of the clustering and finding the structure of your portfolio. Basically, you have clusters, one cluster in crypto, second cluster in uh, stock, third in real estate, etc. Et et Another approach can be seen as the control because uh, you can actually uh, do this uh, allocation dynamically. One month you have one allocation, another month you see some problem from the, you know, in the American market, you want to invest in European, and you put your money that are in American stocks to European stocks, so it's actually the dynamical control over your, over your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, all these approaches were kind of created like uh, step by step in a way, in this article, I try to show that uh, with code, of course, uh, how these algorithms work, what is the difference between them, and uh, I try to give you a feeling what you need to choose, uh, what you need to choose uh, 
for some particular situation because for instance if you are working uh, in some for some pension fund all that you care about is to really optimize carefully for the risks you may not seeking for really high returns but uh, you have, you can't by any chance lose your money if you're working for example on some uh, family fund maybe you're looking for good diversification if you're working on some uh, i know startup you may be looking for the higher risk and higher returns so and uh, i was trying to show the different profiles different algorithms and try to give the feeling to people how they work yeah that that's a very you know big problem that, that there's a lot of uh, demand for financial mm-hmm. institution to job so it seems like you, you need to there's there's no one there's no free lunch right you, you kind of have to mm-hmm. rely on a variety of things depending on the scenarios and the situation uh, at the same time and yeah i i link the sort of the, uh, the, the the post as well as the, the GitHub code that you use for that experiment on the post to, to the show notes so people can get a chance to kind of learn more about it. Yeah, um, of course, everyone is welcome to check the code. Yes. <laughs> so given your extensive experience um, blogging and, and public speaking, what could be advisable for some of the data scientists who want to start doing the same thing? I think that uh, I might sound really kind of simple and banal now, but... Uh, uh, I think two things matter. First one is uh, motivation. Basically, why are you doing this? Because if you have no goal, you quit after the second blog post. And actually, the goals can be different. When I was started, I think I just wanted to have kind of some followers, some fans, uh, and uh, I had some this kind of motivation to be visible. Uh, now I think I see that there's a responsibility, and uh, I need kind of feel like I need to. And I share things carefully. I need to share really useful things. I'm also responsible, also some sort of educator. So, I mean, it's not just about having followers. It's also about some responsibility and uh, kind of trying to push the community. So, you see, my blogs are kind of like uh, semi-research oriented. So, I'm trying to push people to explore new things, to look on the things from the different points of view. So, I found some sort of mission in it. Mm. And second, uh, it's simply, uh, to me, it's kind of hard work. It's uh, kind of hard to push it and uh, you just need to need to kind of accept that you need to work on it. It's consistent work and you can't forget about your blog for half a year or you can't not appear in the public for a year. It's uh, not acceptable. Mm-hmm. If you are committed to it, you have to do it uh, frequently. For example, I haven't posted a blog for a month already, I guess. And I know that in this month I have to post too. Otherwise, it's simply it's simply not good. Yeah, for sure. That's um, consistency. Um, yeah, is is definitely key to any successful endeavor, right? Out of curiosity, like when when you speak at different conferences, what are some of the common questions from from the audience that you get? I'm usually talking on the relatively technical topics, like I'm coming with uh, speeches about time series, about guns, kind of stuff. So usually people are about asking like, okay, I listen to your speech and I have this kind of problem at my work. How can I use like these ideas? And usually it kind of comes to some sort of really short, like five minutes consulting. Uh, guys say, okay, I have this kind of data, can I apply guns there and say, no, you can't. Or saying, yes, if you apply this, 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 it might work out. So. 90% of questions are like this, and another 10 is totally random, from career advices to some friendly questions. And also I like this. Um, back in early 2018, you provided two 
a very compre comprehensive list of um, AI prediction for researchers and and for developers. So um, I guess from a very high level overview, um, how how will this list look like for the year for 2020? If you have to make a prediction again, I think my predictions were maybe 60% accurate. Of course, some things, uh, for example, I was saying that uh, multitask and multimodal learning will be super popular. Unfortunately, it's not. But for example, I think about uh, things like reinforcement learning that will be still in the games, actually still in the games, most of the cases. I think I was right about some uh, like uh, explanation AI trend and uh, AI safety and uh, probably about uh, some sort of uh, artificial intelligence spec that will be some structure from hardware to software. I mean, I think 60-70% were kind of correct. Another 30, it was the, it were the things that I wanted to see. I wanted to see them happen, but it didn't happen, but totally right. Mm -hmm. uh, how, what would I predict for 2020? Actually, I'm planning to write a blog post about it, so yeah. I'm, uh, I'm still thinking about it. Actually, the trends, are kind of long term. I don't know. I, I'm not very talking about this question. I'm kind of gathering the information now, but I think in December I'll select a couple of days, maybe a weekend. I'll just sit, read everything again. Also, I'm really waiting for the neural neural IPS conference soon, and I think based on that, I'll kind of I'll kind of understand more what are the trends and where the where the community or the field is going to. Oh yeah, yeah, the Neurox conference. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty popular one for sure. Yeah, those. those. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm looking forward to reading your list in the next month or so when when you got it out. Um, <coughs> and then the, I guess the, the you know the, the last question in in this my list is, um, can you share your thoughts regarding the um, data science community in uh, Eastern Europe and versus Western Europe? I think that in Eastern Europe community is a bit more technology oriented. I think that people from there, especially like from Ukraine, from Russia, from Belarus and the former USSR countries, uh, have a really great engineering background, but they're kind of focused on the, on the engineering itself. So they're good programmers, they're great mathematicians, but they often can find the practical application of their skills and of their ideas. On the contrary, on the Western Europe, where the world of the capitalism and everyone is selling something, which is completely a good thing because the economy is pushing the development, still the developers and the scientists are really very strong, but uh, what they do is uh, more oriented to have the real value. So maybe, for instance, uh, uh, average German, Italian or Spanish or French uh, developer probably knows less than C++ tricks or knows how to prove less theorems than the average Ukrainian yeah. or Russian developer or the scientist. Yeah. But uh, most probably the average Western European developer will bring more value because he kind of think about the business, think about the value, and I think this is the main difference. Kind of technology focused versus real world focused. That's what I have seen. I see. That's, that's a very sharp, I guess, opinion. No, but it's a reality, and uh, I think that uh, from East, people from Eastern Europe, when put in the right situation, can also deliver a lot of value, sometimes more than the Western, like mm -hmm. Western European people, but they need to be managing, they need to be kind of, they need some help mm -hmm. to, to set up in the right situation, in the right, we need the right place. Previously, I, I have some guests from like France and, and Germany and I think the UK. Mm -hmm. 
uh, before. So so yeah, they 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 all seems very uh, business savvy, right? So it's yeah, I definitely agree with you that uh, those people might, might have a better sense of the practical application of data science and machine learning. It's just great to to kind of you know uh, talking with someone like you who who have some sort of um, background that that allows you to kind of have that observation yeah. in, in both uh, environments. Yeah, I get, mm-hmm. I get lucky to have both. <laughs> Awesome. So, uh, Alexandra, uh, at this part of our conversation, I want to kind of close out with a closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three quick-fire questions, and then you can give the tactical advice, take tactical answer for the people who uh, who want to uh, uh, who want to seek them. Sounds good? Yeah, of course. Awesome. So, the first one is, uh, what are some of the companies that are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? I would uh, sound really, it was not very obvious here, but it's OpenAI, it's uh, DeepMind, it's uh, Salesforce, Einstein, it's Facebook AI, whatever we think about them, Google Research, basically it's Baidu actually. Basically, really most of the big companies that are mostly to AI now from the technology point of view, they do the great job. And actually, they are the ones who are pushing the tool forward. What they do with this technology is already the second question, but uh, I really w- like to watch most of them. Second question is, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Probably, I already mentioned this book in our podcast, and it was the Christopher Bishop, Pattern Recognition and Machine Learning. Really great book. To me, it's like a machine learning and uh, machine learning Bible in a way. So, this one. If one, then this one. The last question is, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I think I would tweet that uh, that you guys should uh, kind of think long term. That uh, don't uh, don't be trapped into some quick trends. Don't be trapped into the popular tools. Think about the long term. Think deep about the field where you're working on. Uh, try to check out what is AI from the historical perspective because the tools. The trends are quickly changing, but the AI field is really relatively mature. It has its own meta trend, it has its own meta ideas. So, in a single tweet, I will kind of try to say look in the root of the field, look in the depth, and uh, look how kind of have some kind of profound ideas and profound understanding of what happens. And uh, when you have this profound understanding, uh, to learn TensorFlow or PyTorch or to learn what is uh, gone will be easy for you because you know what is the place of this momentary tool or momentary algorithm in the whole in the whole history of AI. That would be my advice. Yes, I learned the fundamentals and kind of like looking at the big picture, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Awesome. Well, Alex, uh, I really appreciate you uh, being a guest for my podcast today. I really enjoy learning about your background, some of your... Uh, discussion surrounding uh, deep learning for time series and generative models, um, your experience on you know startup, uh, advice on different data science profiles as well as the current state of uh, the community in, in Europe. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you know listeners for the show can also uh, appreciate some of these uh, thoughtful uh, information and uh, I will definitely link all that in the show notes and uh, people can learn from them. Of course, James. Thank you very much for inviting. I think it was really good and the questions you were asking was really nice and useful and I hope that uh, people who are listening to this they really can, uh, can learn something you interesting for them as well. Great. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. 
Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.